When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever. So you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 137 of... And on this episode, I am talking to Fayaz Farley. And this is an amazing chat. If you're interested in metal music or photography, and particularly if you're interested in both, it's just a brilliant journey, but also a very clever and wise and lovely, beautiful individual. Just an amazing chat. So um, I've also been working on another podcast called DICTV Radio, which is a sketch podcast. You can find it on Spotify. And uh, here's a little taster of the kind of stuff that we're doing. Betty, sit down. Are you wondering why I brought you into the office? Well, yes, I am, actually. Well, Betty, it's because you look dirty. You look dirty and mad. This is a beauty salon. You're a beautician. The clue's in the name. We're all about beauty, not mad, dirty people. I found that quite insulting. How am I dirty? You're covered in marks. They're all over your body. You mean my tattoos? And frankly, you smell like rotten vegetables. Oh, I get it. Is this because I'm vegan? No, not at all. Look, Betty, you're clearly not well. Only yesterday you got sick on Mrs Jaborski's foot. Oh, my God. Have you seen her bunions? They're disgusting. Nobody else would touch your feet. Why are you picking on me? You can't fire me because of how I look. Okay, Betty. I'd hoped you have a better attitude. So let me tell you, I can fire you whenever I want. But count yourself lucky. I won't fire you because I want to help you. I have some friends from the church waiting outside the door and they're willing to help you. Father Michael, Haley, you can come in now. Quick, tie her to the chair, Haley. Okay, Father. What are you doing? Leave me alone. That must be the devil talking, Father. Yes, indeed, Haley. Don't worry, Betty. 
We know you're in there somewhere. Oh my God, you people are insane! He's using the Lord's name in vain, Father. Out, demon! Out! Out! Demon alone! I'm reporting this to the Employment Rights Bureau. This is outrageous. I'll see you in court. Can the devil do that? Bring us the court? Oh no, he's up to his old tricks again. Shut up, demon. You haven't a leg to stand on. You were never employed at this beautician's. Ergo, you have no rights. It's Betty we want to speak to. Not you, Satan. I am Betty, you moron. Oh, he's gone. We've cast him out. That was quick. We must be getting better at this, Father. Welcome back, Betty. Welcome back to the Lord. I will never go. You've been through a lot. Been through anything. Oh, my child, you're still in shock. I'm not in shock. No need to thank me, Betty. It's not the first employee we've had to perform exorcism on. That right, Ailey? And it won't be the last. Now, just get back to work. That's thanks enough for me. Right, okay, look, can I just leave now, okay? Go in peace. Oh, fuck off. Eh, Father Michael? Yes? I know you just cast the demon out there, but she still smelled like rotting vegetables. That would be because she's a vegan. The most vile sinners on God's earth. Right. There you go. Um, Potterooney is on the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Uh, lots of great podcasts on it, and here's one of them. This is What Would You Do If? The podcast to answer all of your What Would You Do If? questions. It's Callum and Jess here, and every week we look at how we'd handle different situations. Before finding out what you should do if you're in them. So far we've looked at... What would you do if you saw someone stealing? A bear attacked you. The baby started choking. You were stuck in a lift. You can hear those episodes and loads more on headstuffpodcast.com with a new one every Monday. Alright, so I'm not going to chat this week because, uh, to be quite honest, I have to get this podcast edited and I want to go down to the beach and go for a run. Uh, so I've got to do that. Uh, I've no time for a chat. I, uh, I'm just going to let you listen to this wonderful chat with Fias Farley. You're not originally from Ireland, are you? No, no. I mean, I my my dad's Irish, my mother's Zimbabwean, albeit from Indian stock, and uh, met in Drogheda in the early seventies. And uh, <clears throat> long story short, I think it was yeah, mum was studying to become a nurse here in Drogheda, and uh, you know, they I think she went back to Africa around seventy eight. Dad followed her, then somehow they ended up back near London, and I was born in Crawley, but grew up in Africa from age one. Then we came back to Ireland to Cavan in 91. I would have been 11. Don't remember much of it. I remember bits. And uh, that didn't work out for whatever reason. And we went back to Africa and uh, then came back again in 2000. And we've been here ever since. Although, as you know, I've been living like a pinball or a gypsy, as it were, ever since. Traveling gypsy, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. When then did you get interested in photography? Uh, I suppose, um, let me think, 2000. So, yeah, we came here in June 2000, and 
I mean, I had already spent a year out of school not doing anything out in Africa because there was not really any prospects. We're trying to figure out things. And that's one of the biggest pluses of my parents coming, bringing us back here was just the opportunity afforded, you know, and uh, being able to go to art school was, well, actually it wasn't even, it wasn't even in my radar at that point. I, I was working in a factory and earning money and uh, drifting, you know, uh, I've always been obsessed with heavy metal. So that was just, I would work. And then every Friday, go to Patty's shop on Peter Street and buy 10 CDs and then head home with them, you know, and then this was my life for two years. Just, just, I couldn't believe that I could buy a heavy metal CD in a shop and not have to ask a relative overseas for it, you know, so <clears throat> music's always kind of been the motivating thing. And, uh, so what bands were you listening to then? I suppose I started on Metallica when I was 14. And uh, my dad was always the guitar influence in my house, you know, like from the Cream to ACDC to Dire Straits to Creedence Clearwater. I mean, he's, he's, a bit, he's a big guitar music fan, you know, like I grew up on that stuff. So I was always hearing it. And uh, quite an angry teenager. Friends at school had hip hop. It was like Cypress Hill, Snoop Dogg. And like, I was looking for acceptance as a youngster, you know, something I don't look for anymore. But I was looking for acceptance as a young, young person. And uh, so I started listening to hip hop. I actually still love it now. But then someone handed me a tape of Rage Against Machine, and that was the you know, mix of rap and this kind of hard rock. And then someone else gave me a tape of Metallica's Justice for All, and that was me. That was just, I couldn't believe there was this. I remember just remembering how aggressive it was and how everyone around me reacted really badly to it. As a young, I guess I was intention-seeking in a way, even though I was kind of shy. I liked certain types of attention, which was, you know, to get a reaction. I'll openly admit that now. So when I saw people freak out that I listened to this crazy music, it kind of made me feel a little bit dangerous, even though I really wasn't, you know? Then I went to Christian Brothers College for a couple of years to do my A-level, and it was there I would get called a freak and a weirdo. I get certain words I can't even use use on here for wanting to do art and not play rugby. You know, and my parents would always teach me, like, it's just things people say, and it's, as long as they're not physically hurting you, it doesn't matter. So just follow your heart. My mother was always, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. And... uh yeah, I was sitting drawing a Slayer skull in art class one day, and uh, I still remember it like yesterday. I was 18, and these three boys walked by, and one of them threw something at me. I think it was his lunch or something, and you know, called me something. And uh, we want to do art for you know, blah blah blah. And Mrs. Crew, may she rest in peace. She said, "You're very good at this, and you clearly your eyes light up. So I think you should just keep doing this because you're, you know." So the art thing was kind of always in my in my wheelhouse, and then I came here and I was walking down the street in July of 2000 and I saw a kid in a Slipknot t-shirt and I couldn't believe that there was someone else just in public, you know. I was like, wow, there's other people here that are into this and uh, immediately started feeling better about where we were. Went to this factory and then there was an old man there who told me to go do something with my brain. Didn't know what that meant, never considered it. And uh, a good friend of mine, Niall Kieran's told me about a course in Drogheda where he was, there was a man called Simon Rainsford who was teaching drawing and it turned out to be a portfolio course. So I, I just, I went and I applied and uh, I was two weeks late and he took me in based on the way I approached him is what he said. And, uh, yeah, and I, I sat down and we were, we went through the kind of course and I'd really caught up in, in four days, the two weeks that I already missed because I just couldn't believe I could go somewhere and learn to draw and learn to learn about art and you talk about music and you, you know and film and all these things that I'd always been kind of interested in but never had people to conversate with it was coming up to going to apply to courses where he said what do you want to study and I said I have a clue he says well what do you what would you like to do I said well I love music and I've always wanted to design CD covers and so he said well 
let's contact this man. So we, we, I brought in the CD because there was an email address in it and uh, his name is Travis Smith, an American artist. And uh, I emailed him, it was a hotmail address and he got back to me and he said, uh, I don't know how I ended up doing this because it's been so long now, but I did study graphic design. Uh, turns out he does a lot of photography too, which is, you know, part of his, he does a lot of mixed media and um, conceptual stuff and, you know, things he'd photograph and then he kind of brings them all into Photoshop and everything. He's amazing. So yeah, so I went and studied design and we had a, an hour long class once a week on a Wednesday of photography, but it was mainly to understand image because we were working with type, you know, uh, typography and image. So, and it was in my f- third year because I messed around in college. I'll be honest. I didn't really care. I couldn't believe that no one was telling me what to do. <laughs> and I, I just, I just went with it. I was like, you mean, you mean I don't come in for a week? I don't get into trouble. He goes, well, it's on you. So, yeah, I dosed around a lot and just would hand up the projects past and keep moving. But I got really interested in my subject in the last three months. It's so stupid. You know, when you think back on it, I started to really love design and got really into the photography just because I liked it was in film. It was also in film. So you couldn't see the results immediately. So there was like a sense of mystery that I really enjoyed, you know. It was in my second last class, my lecturer, Nicola Troy, said to me, you know, you have an eye for this. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Um, She says, it's literally just that. you. There's something about the way you photograph. It's a little bit different to everyone else in the class. And there's always a little story in it. So I, I guess I took it on board. I don't know. But six months later, I was working my first design job after badgering the creative director there. Like once a week, I bugged her to give me an internship. And she eventually gave me a paycheck once she took me in because I just didn't leave her alone until she until she let me in. And um, Mary Doherty is her name. She's from Donegal. She's huge influence on my life. And... Uh, yeah, bought a, bought a big uh, digital SLR with my first big paycheck and uh, started, you know, just kind of messing around with it. And it was, actually, I remember I was initially to take part in a forum competition. I was, it was just like, I think the theme that week was the number three. So you had to look for things with threes and photograph. And then I started putting stuff onto that forum. This was like 2006. And people on there were responding to the imagery and whatnot. And some of the band, it was Machine Head. This is, Actually, this is probably the main reason. Yeah, it was Machine Head's forum. And the singer would sometimes come on that forum and talk with us, and which was a big deal for all of us fans, you know. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, I quit that design job 2006 when she offered me a full-time job out of kind of instinct, not the money was good, but I just, I don't know. She said, I'm offering you a job for life now. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm leaving. And then I didn't know why I said that because it wasn't part of my plan. Mm. I thought, I want to go back to college. And part of the reason I went back to college was to mess around because I just didn't like having a vacuum in my head and turning up at nine o'clock. I'm a hard worker, as you know, but don't like, I just don't like the structure. You know, it's, it's just, I love working hard, but I, yeah, anyway, we're not going to get into that. And uh, that's kind of how I started getting into photography. And then, uh, yeah, then I went back to, and I went to NCAD this time for two years to finish my degree. And when I was there, I started pushing a little bit more and my design projects became more photographic based and with kind of typography being the supporting thing. I still always fulfilled the briefs, but I did notice like a lean towards it, you know, and, uh, and being in Dublin every day was an exciting thing for me at the time because I, I love Dublin those days. I still do, but there was something about those days. Maybe it's because I was younger. I don't know, but it was, uh, it was just an exciting place to photograph and there's always something to see. My lecturer, Brendan DC at NCAD sent me to Amsterdam on a three month internship over the people who already been there uh, for two years. So that caused a lot of strife with some of my fellow students they they felt i was being favored but it was nothing to do with that i was just really into design and i'd always engage with him because he was really i still talk with that man he was just such a great lecturer to have he he 
he sparked things in you and he, you know, if you showed enthusiasm, his enthusiasm went up. And so he sent me to Amsterdam and this is so weird, but the last two days I was there, this forum, the webmaster of that forum, who I'd never spoken with, not even once, wrote to me on there and said, listen, I'm in Amsterdam for a day tomorrow. You seem cool. Are you around? I just was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went, I met this guy. He's from California. He's now a really good friend of mine, but uh just showed him around and, you know, my favorite spots. And we had a really good day and said goodbye. I came home to Ireland like a day later and uh, he emailed me maybe, this was 2007 summer, about a few weeks later and just said, listen, I had such a good day because of where you showed me and the things we did. And I want to return the favor, so I'm, I put you on the guest list for Machine Head in Glasgow. I know you're going. And I just, I remember the time going, what, seriously? And he, he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, oh, Jesus, okay. Couldn't really fathom this, you know, because I've been listening to Machine Head since I was 15 in Africa. Get to the gig. A guy walks by that I recognize from a super fan article in Metal Hammer magazine from 1998. His name's Alan Hungerford. And I just said, Alan. And he turned around and he goes, how the hell do you know my name? Uh, so I remember you for that super fan thing you had all that machine head merchandise and turns out he was working as the production guy on their on their tour and he goes hang on are you the guy on the what on the guest list and i was yeah so he sorted me out brought me in i mean it was a whirlwind man i didn't we're just talking about a small metal gig here but to me it's like it may as well have been you know david bowie you know so his word he got me backstage and i remember walking down this hall with my friend brendan who was also with me and he opened the door and there was rob flynn the singer standing with his guitar just getting ready for the show and i just remember just going oh shit because it was the, it was something i'd never anticipated but now it's reality i'm looking at this man and and i walk in and all the guys are here all these guys from my wall all these posters these gigs i've been going to you know and everyone like calls me in and he's like you looked after bill in amsterdam thanks very much he's a good friend of ours and i made a complete tit of myself and uh went out enjoyed the show spoke to them briefly again then that december they came through dublin and <clears throat> there's a point to all this and uh alan was still working for them so i said alan i've got a gift for the guys i really want to just give it to them personally do you think that's something we can arrange and he said, yeah totally so what i'd done was i designed a personalized t-shirt with the machine head logo and a shamrock it wasn't cheesy it sounds cheesy but um and the date and but it was a thank you to them for their hospitality that they you know that they showed this random and uh i got to give it to them all bumped into rob later that night when i was leaving the venue and just he just said thanks for the shirt again then i remember seeing phil the guitar player wearing it on stage somewhere that summer i just remember just being really you know overwhelmed by all this and yeah. anyway back to life uh finish off design and density 2008 this is when we met actually. Yeah. Because uh, I did a wedding the week prior to meeting you, then that job we did. And do you remember I lost it and I had to... I do remember that. You lost the photograph. And I remember we, had, we, had, we redid yours. I couldn't redo the wedding, but I was able to redo yours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't I, It's not even funny. It was... You were, no, you were really down about that. You were really down. That was... You know, it was my first foray into trying to be whatever, trying to make some money out of this. And the couple had taken a chance on me because I was just out of college wasn't a trained photographer. This is another thing. It's just some chap with a camera, you know? And it's not an excuse, but I didn't know hard drives died and all these stupid things. I didn't make an extra backup. <clears throat> so that drive died. I couldn't replace their wedding, but I could give them the JPEGs. I mean, it was a dark, dark thing. And I had to go do it to their face, which is another thing I've always done. You know, you don't shy away from things. So I was ready to pack it in after I'd finished redoing your job. I was just, you know, and I went into kind of, I guess, a dark period for a couple of months because it was winter as well. And I had these three tickets, Amsterdam and two Paris shows for Slipknot and Machine Head. And uh, Alan was still working for them. But I made up a MySpace page and just pretended to be from a magazine, like just that I had experience and just looked a little bit more legit to get a photo pass, which he did. He got it for me and got to Amsterdam. 
got some photographs slipping on as well, which was, you know, was, and when I look back on these images, they're actually not that great. They were pretty good for someone with very little experience, especially dealing with light in a venue. Anyway, man, uh, we finished, yeah, and we went over with so little money and we're staying at this shite hostel in Amsterdam and then got a bus for nine hours to Paris that, that morning. But we did it anyway and we got to these gigs and, uh, the second Paris one, I was finally backstage again. I'd just shown the guitarist some stepping on a photo that he liked on my camera and, uh, I said to Alan, Listen, I gotta go now. We gotta get to the hostel and then we're going home. And he said, Well, you coming to London? I said, well, No, I've just, I got no money. I, and I told him the story of how I lost the wedding and, you know, lost the job with you and just hadn't worked. And my friend had paid the flight for me to get there. And <clears throat> he said, Well, listen, if you can get to the Hammersmith, I'll sort you out, but you should just come because it's the last show and it's going to be fun. So I came home and sheepishly said to my mother, told her the story, you know, and she said, Well, look, I'll buy you the flight. I didn't tell her I only had 10 pounds. That was all the money I had, you know. But she got me the flight and the 10 pounds was enough to get the tube in into Harrisburg. And I just trusted that someone would feed me or something. Where did my camera? It sounds dramatic, but I had borrowed enough of my mother at that point. You know, I, it, it felt like it was just going for a job to just go for a night of fun, you know, uh, before looking for a job again. Because this was December 2008. And uh, he got me another photo pass and I took better ones that night. Then I was standing backstage afterwards. I was actually on my own at this point. I knew a few people there, but I was on my own and... I overheard a friend of mine called Henning. He's from Norway. He knows the band quite well. Great photographer. He mentioned that they'd asked him to film on the road and that uh, he turned it down because he didn't want to give up his job or his flat. And I just remember hearing it just going, Jesus, I don't know how I get that, but I have to try and get that. Never considered it. You know, it's one of these moments. I just never even considered it or even thought of it even being a possibility. So I went straight to Alan and said, I'm going to email you in a week with a proposition. I just need you to show Rob. That's all I need you to do. And if you can do that for me, I'll really appreciate it. He goes, yeah, I will, mate. No worries. So I left, didn't even stay for the party, went back to my friend's house in Earlsfield, came home, put together an email of 20 photos, which I thought were the best, gave 10 reasons why they should take me, lied and said I had tons of video camera experience, and uh, which I'd never even turned one on at this point. But I knew that Rob liked a couple of my photos from his comments on that forum. So, you know, it's just what's the worst going to happen. So I sent it off. I guess Alan showed him. Move forward to January 2009. I think it was about mid-January and I was sitting here in the sitting room playing Grand Theft Auto on the doll and mum walked in and said, there's an American on the phone and he wants to talk to you. I think his name's Rob or something. I answered, you know, it was, it was him. And he apologized for taking so long. He said, we're gearing up for this Metallica tour. We're starting in a week and we want to give you a shot because I really liked your, your proposal and I think you take a good photo. So I think we can translate that composition skill to, to video and you have video camera experience. So great. You know what I'm thinking? <laughs> I don't actually, but I didn't tell him that. And uh, so he just, yeah, I, I remember him running through questions. He's, where do you live with my mother? Have you got a job? No. He says, well, it's going to have to be yes or no. He said, I'm sorry, but we, we, we have to start in four days. So I just said, well, yeah. His manager called me then an hour later. And then an hour later, I had the flight to Chicago booked for Saturday, which was Tuesday night. And then you go, shit, wait, what have I, what have I done? So I just packed my bag with too much for tour is what I learned because I got laughed at by everyone that day when I arrived because everyone said, this is clearly your first day. And I said, what do you mean? That's something's too big for a start. Uh, so I went to Chicago, shitting bricks, get picked up, get to the, the hotel, fall asleep in the merch guy's armchair in his room because I hadn't slept in like two days. He wakes me up, says, Rob wants to talk to you. He's arrived. So I got to go to the hotel. And this is where it changed from Rob being the guy on my wall to he's now my boss, you know, and he opens the hotel door and he's he's just in work mode, you know, and he's, he's it's his thing and it's he he takes it seriously and 
He's the driving force. He's the one who took the chance on me, you know? And uh, yeah, he handed me this huge Pelican case, which had this fancy video camera with all these attachments, things on. And I just went, yeah, cool. Yeah, I remember ner- nervously taking it. Just go, yeah, thanks. Just go, shit, why the hell is this thing so big? And uh, <clears throat> went to my room, didn't sleep. He gave me the brief, didn't sleep, woke up. No, got up off my bed, eight in the morning, walked off to the lobby, trying to find out where I was going. And I saw Phil, the guitar player. He walked me over to the arena. It was an arena. Like, I mean, it was fucking 80,000 people, you know. And I walk in and James Hetfield from Metallica walked by me and I just went, what the hell is going on? You know, oh crap, I'm here to work. I can't, uh, so I had to like talk myself down and, you know, like take the fan out. And anyway, it was a strange day. I don't remember much of that day because I just remember being completely overwhelmed and Everyone else knows what they're doing. So they're all just running around doing their thing. And so I figured, okay, what's the best thing I can do? Let me try and figure out this camera. So I can't figure it out. So I'm on YouTube trying to find a tutorial on it. And uh, behind a couch in the dressing room, uh, I didn't know Rob was had been watching me for a little bit. I didn't even know he was there. And I just heard, hey, and I turn around. He's looking over the couch. And he goes, you don't know how to use that, do you? I said, no. And he goes, so what? So you lied to me. I said, well, only a little bit. I mean, yeah, yeah, about this. But, and he goes, hey. It turns out he was messing with me, but he turned around the whole room and made an example of me and said what a liar I was and that he'd flown me from Ireland and what a waste of time this kid was and, and you know, like a waste of his money on all this stuff and the hotel rooms. And I, you know, I felt like, uh, like a little guy. And then he, he turned around because, you know what, man, I'm only joking with you, but we're not going to hold your hand. Figure it out. And if you don't figure it out, I want to send you home. It's that simple. I said, all right, cool. Still very nervous though. And, uh, showtime's just getting closer and closer and closer. And I still haven't figured this thing out. Um, so around 5.30, they were going on at eight. I just said to myself, I don't know what's going on. I can't put this thing together. Turns out I was missing three parts that the guy previous to me had lost and didn't tell them because it's a big rig you got to put together. And I just didn't know this, you know, but if I'd known the research, the camera probably maybe I would have, but he's like, I don't care, man. Just leave me alone and figure it out. So I'm just getting more and more panicked. Uh, so I used this kind of hand cam I had. I figured, well, I may as well film something. And I was in the wrong place prior to showtime, like 15 minutes. I was standing with the drummer just thinking, oh, this is great. Finally, things are moving. Turns out Rob's guitar has gone down and he's out trying to fix it in the middle of 80,000 people because um, it's in the round. They don't have a stage. It's always Metallica's always in the middle. I can't figure out why he's so angry during the show. And then they cut three songs. So it's really embarrassing for them. And they only had 20 minutes or something. So it was pretty embarrassing. And then he just stormed by me when they were finished. And I just remember standing going, what the hell's going on? And then... Metallica stage manager actually is from our club. Uh, I forget his name, Alan something. I just heard, get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> I turned around and it was this guy screaming at me and all these guys just pushing gear. And I was just standing like an idiot, you know, so I ran out of the way and I went back to the dressing room area and the door was closed and I thought, what the hell do I do? And I still have a vision of my hand like doing this by the handle. So I thought, do I go in? What, what do I do? And then I remembered him saying to me the night before, just film everything. And if someone looks at you badly, just ignore them and keep going because they're not going to like it sometimes. But we're all in agreement that this has been done. So but you still have that thing where you, you know, <clears throat> went in anyway. Three of the dudes are sitting eating dinner and one of them shouted at me, go film that phone call. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, in there. And I went in and it was in the toilet area and Rob was on the phone screaming at someone about his guitar rig, and he glanced at me. Now, the footage is actually unusable because like, my hand was shaking so much. <laughs> and I'm not scared of him. It's, I don't know, it's, I guess it's the pressure and the situation. And I was a lot younger too and inexperienced, and I'd lied about my parents' skill set. And uh, anyway, 
four o'clock in the morning after their after party when no one had talked to me apart from my friend who's now Cheryl Sheets talking to me and a couple of fans I spoke to Rob got up walked over to me we had one more night here at this this arena so he was going back to the hotel and he, he goes stand up dude and I stood up and he goes you did the right thing tonight and he good on you and he walked off you know and it's, it's just this I guess it was like a life lesson you know it was like you, you gotta act on instinct and so then we agreed that I could do the photography as kind of like a hobby thing and if they needed the photograph they'd use it but the main thing I was doing was filming so it was actually a really good way to hone my photography skills like on the fly and um i ended up doing 18 months with them on that run and we we encountered like so many different scenarios daily and this was a time before social media had really taken off i mean there was bits of facebook there was bits of myspace but there was no smartphones yet so there was none of this immediacy yet you know there was just we could stockpile the work and and just keep and they weren't really putting stuff online yet which is kind of funny to think about now but you know we traversed everywhere and we did all these different shows with different bands and i was meeting heroes of mine and having experiences and but all the while the 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 the, the photography i was just getting more and more interested in it and the filming as well you know it's it, it's now become a part of my my repertoire as well it's it's i don't know what that that was quite a ramble but, no, but that was that's amazing. And then was it on that tour? I've seen photos of you with the uh, the guys from Metallica. Was it on that tour that? You- yeah, I, my mother raised me never above, never below, always beside you know, and uh, never to worship anyone. Um, but when James Hetfield walked in a room, I don't know, I couldn't even talk. You know, it was just this is the man that that wrote music that that woke my mind up as a teenager, you know, as a young teenager, and told me it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you because this uncompromising aggressive um music that spoke about things like no justice in the world or you know or someone who went through war and is now destroyed they just spoke about so many real things and and everyone was telling me it was satanic and or maybe it was you know just for shock value in the early 80s but metallica just had this different vibe you know all the subjects were about real things and Mm. things that the singer himself had lived or people he knew and you know, and people have their views on Metallica now, you know, but they've been going nearly 40 years. So, like, to meet James Hetfield was, it was just as crazy, like a personal circle to make, and a circle I never anticipated in my life. You know, and it, it wasn't so much the worship of him as that he embodied, uh, the motivation in my life, you know, and, 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 and then to meet him and him to be such a decent human being to me was, because he didn't have to be, he could be a complete dick if he wanted to be, you know, but all four of them actually, I really noticed that they they were just personable and they made an effort to like if they walked by you in a hall they just greeted you and nodded at you you know it it wasn't like there was no aloofness and no we're all here I mean Lars approached me on the second night I was there I was going back to the the, the dressing room for battery and he was walking and he just walked up to me hey man I'm Lars I've been seeing you around what are you doing with these guys and I said look man uh, I know who you are I grew up on your music I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't. And he goes, well, that's a turn off of the books. Most people hate me. I said, I love you. And uh, I just love what you've done. Um, I love your attitude to things. Because he couldn't even play drums when he started. You know, this is what I, mm-hmm. he's just so determined. And he's part of the reason they're successful. He's an incredible song arranger. People give Lars too much crap, in my opinion. But yeah, so they were really personal. And then James always, he'd been in our dressing room quite a few times because he was learning a song by the Machine Head guys because he wanted to play on stage with them. So this was the crazy part, Joe, because he had gotten influence from Machine Head at the time, being a younger band from their area in San Francisco, and it gave him a fire again. So he had brought them on tour. They were all completely enamored because they had started Machine Head in a, at, a, at a Metallica show. And then there's me who 
got into metal through Metallica and then Machine Head kind of solidified it when I was a late teen. Mm. So there's this three tiered thing that I'm watching, you know, and it, it, for me, it was just such a big deal. And, uh, yeah, you see, I'd, he'd come in quite a few times and I just, I just left him alone, you know, and, and just never even said hello, never bothered him. Turns out he said to me when I did speak to him, why didn't you ask me months ago? I just, I had no answer really. I just go, you know, and, um, <clears throat> and he, this is after Phil and Machine had introduced me because I still didn't have the guts to even ask him. I just didn't want to bother him for some reason. He goes, look, he really wants a photo with you. It's our last night with you guys. Uh, he's just being an idiot. You won't ask. So I'm going to ask for him. Love you, Phil. And, uh, James, you know, James says, oh, why'd you, why'd you ask me? And then he threw his arm around me and we got that photo. And, and then he looked at me and he went, Oh, you're that South Park kid. Cause, uh, that's what I was known for on tour was I was always quoting South Park or watching it, always watching it. And I used to drive half the band crazy because Adam, the bass player, and I would watch South Park every night on the bus and just laugh. And everyone would just, oh, you're watching it again, you know? So much so that Dave, the drummer, bought me South Park pajamas one night in Berlin for my birthday. But uh, he said, you're that South Park kid. And I said, yeah, I guess so. And he goes, yeah, Rob was telling me about it. He goes, well, come on, give us a line. And I, I just blanked. I couldn't even come up with one. <laughs> I just looked around the whole room, laughed at me, and I just made it, you know, and asked myself again. But then we, we finished up. We saw them again that summer. And James remembered my name, like, four months later, you know? I just, I just heard, hey, fire. And I turned around, and it's him. And I said, whoa. And he, he goes, I'm looking for those machine head guys. Do you know where they are? And I said, yeah, yeah just, just back there, you know? And I just remember standing there going, what the hell? Like, how does he remember that? You know, because they literally meet, they're like hundreds of people a day, you know? So it's, and you've got all these people, and I, it happened to me too. I, I I would meet someone, and then a week later they'd say, "Hey, how's it going?" I go, "Hey, I'm fine." You know, and I've completely forgotten their face. But and they take it personally, but it's nothing to do with that. It's it's especially when you're focused on working every day and you are meeting people and you're personable for that moment. But I'm still thinking about what I got to be filming, and because it's my arse, you know, and I, I have to make sure my job's done. And which nearly slipped, you know, like three months to the tour. Even Rob himself had to like, "Hey, look, I know it's your first time on tour, but you got to reel it in a bit." Because you're just not getting as much as done as you need to do. You're partying too much, and I just and he said, "That's fine. I'm not shitting on it either." He said, "But we do need something out of the end of this." He says, "I'm not trying to put a rule on anything. I just need you to know that it's just cool, just a tiny bit, because you do have like a responsibility here." And I just thought, well, yeah, okay. And I mean, let's be honest. Well, how many jobs could you say that? And, you know, no, stop getting so hammered all the time. Just just pull it back a little bit. Right. Not not you're fired. You know, and, uh, I met Kirk. I met Kirk the first couple of days we were there. I mean, he, he was always kind of, he's almost shy in a way. Like he, he doesn't interact with people as much. He's just always really decent and really nice. You know, Lars and James would be the two main people. Yeah. You know, so you know yourself, they're kind of the main, main writers. And, uh, and then Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath. This is the reason that isn't heavy metal. He came to the show in Birmingham, the Metallica show, and he walked by. I called him sir. And he looked at me and he goes, I can't be having any of that, lad. Don't be, don't be calling me sir again. I said, I don't even know why I said that. I'm sorry. I, but I didn't even ask him for fun. I just left him alone. I mean, he's, he's our godfather. You know, he's the reason this genre exists. He'll, he'll tell you it isn't, but Black Sabbath is the, is the, they're the main reason, you know, and big, big influence on me. And do you have a, maybe an even bigger appreciation of that music because you, you said you couldn't get that kind of music when you were in Zimbabwe? <clears throat> No, you could buy, um, there was this department store called Meekles, um, where I think it was around 1995. They started to get a few international CDs in. Now I'm talking, you might get 10 CDs, you know, and one or two of them might be metal. If you put an order in, you might get something because they order them from South Africa. But yeah, it was, it, it, 
it wasn't widely listened to. I mean, in my whole school of a thousand kids, I want to say there was about maybe eight of us. And even in that eight, there was six of them that thought they were better than myself and my other friend because we liked these, these newer bands that like Machine Head that would wear Machine Head kind of wore this, this almost hip hop clothing in the nineties, but they were all big hip hop fans and they come from Oakland and they grew up in that culture. But they play metal, you know, so and Rob had cornrows in his hair. So I just had this different I really got into like certain aspects of Californian metal and there's a band called Deftones from Sacramento and I wear white socks that I pull up because of the guitar player in that band. You know, I they call them cholo socks in California, I've learned since I lived there, which all the Mexicans wear. And um it was just something I just kinda of gravitated to. So it's yeah, in Zimbabwe it was it was just kind of like taboo, you know, and, and, but it's such an alien sound to certain people who've never heard it before. So I understand, you know, it's, it's screaming and it sounds crazy. I mean, I still remember being scared of it when I was a teenager, like certain bands, you know, it's, uh, Sepultura scared the living daylight out of me when I first heard them because I'd never heard a voice like, but the, the fear of his, not the fear, being scared of it made me more intrigued, you know, and, uh, when I first got a Pantera song, I was sitting at my tape deck, just listening to the song over and over again. It's a song called I'm Broken. I turned around and, my mom and my father were standing at the door. My mom went, what's happening to our child? <laughs> Back then, you could buy an album based on an album cover. You know, you wouldn't have to, like, you could just take the risk. It was fun you know, and exciting. And all my CDs that I had, I think I had 12 by the time we left Africa, but each one was in pretty condition. I wouldn't even like taking the booklet and not too much because I didn't want to scuff the plastic. You know, so I was really, really obsessed with it, just trying to keep everything as, as, as pristine as possible. So these stores would only stock one or two things every now and again and mm. I just keep checking in hopes there might be something, you know, and if anyone went abroad anywhere, I'd ask them for one. So yeah, it was that scarcity I think uh intensified the hunger for it, you know. I don't know, there's something to it. And mm. and you, the the pandemic has cut short, you're gonna go on tour with uh, a band called Dead Daisies, right? Yes, yeah. How did you start working with them for a start? And who are they? They're, um, I guess the best way of describing them is they're kind of like a revolving door for musicians. Um, it's a band started by my manager, David Edwards. He used to manage, um, Kylie Minogue in NXS. And his, one of his good friends, a man called David Lowy, he's an Australian, uh, and he's a billionaire. And that's how he's been able to fund this. Now they started maybe 10 years ago. I, I actually wasn't aware of them because they're classic rock and I don't, I don't really listen to classic rock despite growing up on it, but, uh, I was working as a sous chef, which is another one of my passions, which is cooking and food. So I was working in his kitchen and it was a Sunday night and I came home and I got a call from a German guy just out of the blue. said, I have a proposition for you. And, and he says, I've got this band, the Dead Daisies. I was like, I've never heard of them. He goes, oh, well, it doesn't matter. But they're looking for someone to film in Europe and take some pictures. And uh, I was talking with the manager the other day and your name came to mind because... I was talking to Rob the other day, the singer from Machina, and he said, uh, I just asked him how you were as a person, and Rob gave you a good reference. I mean, that's, that's so cool. You know, I hadn't even worked with Rob in nearly 10 years. We're still friends, and I still see them when they tour Europe, but, uh, you know, work-wise, we hadn't worked together. And, and uh, he said, well, would you be interested? And this is the wage, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, yeah, that sounds good. And, and uh, anyway, <clears throat> got really panicked and stressed coming up to this. Gave myself tonsillitis, because I just do this to myself, you know, and then had one week to recover, went to Glasgow, arrived at a five-star hotel, which for me was just, I was like, what the hell are we doing here? I just wasn't used to that. <clears throat> but this 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 hotel was nice. And uh, when you walked in, it had a nice smell and the lights were perfect. And get to my room and everything I'd ordered, like my bag and 
bunch of things that he'd asked me, like, what do you need? It was all just waiting there, you know, my name on. It was just a bizarre experience for me. Get to bed, wake up, meet, manager for the first time. He's very to the point. Mm. We're here to do this. Are you ready? Let's go. So we get down to rehearsal. We got three days of rehearsal. <clears throat> and yeah, I just uh, kept messing up that first day and but managed to get enough out because I got the brief and it was a very intense um, schedule of pr- producing every day. And the tour was starting, I think, three days later. Yeah, it turns out these guys fly around in, in a G5 private plane, you know, and uh, never on a tour bus. So it was this completely different way of touring for me. It was just, it was just bizarre. Went on tour, um, came back home, working again in the kitchen later that year. Anyway, I got called back by these guys, by my manager. So we went to France in December of 2019, where they were recording a new record with a new singer, uh, Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. That's the revolving door thing I was talking about. So they kind of each record cycle, they get someone new in and it. Right. So who was in the band back in the first time you went? To- uh, John Karabi was the singer. He's from Motley Crue. Um, great guy. A little bit, you know, some people who, who do this work might take certain things personally, personally, but he came up to me and he goes, what's your name? Uh, Fires. And he looks at me and he wears his sunglasses inside this guy. And then he looks at me and he goes, I'm American. That's too hard to say. You're, you're Frank. <laughs> and uh can i swear on here is that yeah. yeah well yeah and i said jesus you're some cunt and he looks at me and he goes and he looks at the manager goes, i like him keep him around and i just knew that immediately i didn't even mean to say that it just kind of came out especially being in glasgow i'd already been there a few days and it's just you know it just comes out it's not a word i use often but especially in scotland you hear it a lot you know mm. <clears throat> But he, he took it on his chin and the two of us just immediately hit it off because of that, you know, and it was a person to person thing. And Dean Casanova from Journey was on drums, Doug Aldridge from Dio and Whitesnake on guitar, and then Mr. David Lowy, the, uh, the guy who kind of funds it all, but he's also been in a few bands. Like he's a, he's a competent guitar player and he's, he just kind of spends more of his time in his business. Like, but to two years I've known them, he's become an even better guitar player. Like just this time around when they were recording this time, he was streets ahead of when I'd last seen him, you know. He's a really good man too. He's a great guy. So this time around, oh, and Marco Mendoza was playing bass that time and he was from White Snake and Thin Lizzy he'd played for. And he, these two guys left to pursue solo stuff and they got one guy in to replace the two, which is Glenn Hughes. So Glenn plays bass and sings. And Glenn's from Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and uh, Black Country Communion. Interesting guy. I, I, I grew up on him. But I pretended I didn't know who he was first. I met him just to just to wind him up a little bit, you know, because I knew he was English, so you take a bit of banter, you know. And uh, yeah, it, it, <clears throat> so they they recorded this record over the space of I think it was about a month, and we all stayed together in a chateau, and I had to work eighteen hours a day most days, um, filming, photographing, but not constantly. But you kind of have to be focused the whole time and just watching everything because you know you could stand there and film. This is a really good example of what I do because if I'm in a studio with a band, you could stand there and film him playing solos all day, but then you're going to have too much stuff to watch. So you kind of have to know what you're looking for while you're doing it. And that's just something you learn as you're going. It's, it's not something you can really, I think, just know. And you have to learn through mistakes and, you know. So I was filming for a documentary making of, filming for the social media where we did a weekly rap video, filming just for little bits that might happen, coming up with video ideas, photographing as well. Really helps to have a camera that does both now. That's one of the great things about being in 2020, apart from all the other bad things. Happening, we have this technology now where you can just flick a switch and the camera goes from filming to, to, so you have to keep changing, you know? Um, and then there's, there's every day was 20 photographs gallery to tell a story of the day, 
that they put on their website. There's also five Instagram posts per day, which have to be different from the day before. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's and I, I don't know if I'll ever go back with them. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of an open-ended thing. And I, if we can get back to the pandemic, I, I don't know what I'll do moving forward yet. You know, um, but you are about to go with them on tour. Yeah, we were gonna, we were in talks about it and, um, and then the pandemic hit. Yeah, yeah, it would have started in February of last year. And, you know, they're just one story. I mean, like, I have so many friends that, you know, all their livelihoods and everything was based on this. Well, the, the thing that started this journey off for me is a machine at lyric called that says dare to fail. And, uh, it was what I used in my subject line for that email to Rob with my proposition. And he said, I used the, I used the lyric in that context. It wasn't so much that I used his lyric. He just said he found it interesting that I'd taken it on board and it was part of my, but it was. I, at the time when I heard it at 19, I didn't know what the hell he meant by it. But, you know, you just, and this is the beauty of this, this, uh, this journey I've taken. If there's one thing I could add, yeah. um, I don't know if there's anyone young listening or, uh, especially anyone younger, don't ever listen to anyone who tells you you can't do something with regards to, and it's not even that I achieved something that I was, which I never really set out to do, if I'm honest, which was touring or meeting these guys. But, I was constantly told by someone in college, why do you keep trying things? Like, there's never going to take someone from Ireland. What do you, do you think? What are you? Are you a photographer? Are you a video guy? Are you a designer? What are you? This guy kept saying these things to me over the years. And I don't, I don't know. I'm just, just like doing this stuff. And I love going to these gigs. And um, I don't know what's the worst that's going to happen, which is the, you know, I guess is the, the main takeaway I could put forward from this is daring to fail. And especially these days where, Failure has a real negative connotation to it. I was just watching Denzel Washington the other night say, you're going to fail at some point in your life and it's actually good for you. So when it does come, because it is going to come, be ready for it, embrace it and pick yourself up and learn something from it. You know? And, uh, so yeah, I hope anyone listening just don't ever give up on things and just, and if you, if you love it, who cares if you're making money out of it or not? Just keep doing it, even if it's in the background, because there's so many things I've done. It's never been for money, but the experiences that I've got out of them or the lesson have added to the overall journey forward in this life you know and uh yeah it all eventually adds adds to it if you just yeah it's like a quiver you know like for a bow and arrow you just you just keep putting them in and just keep putting them in and there's always something positive to be found and anger isn't necessarily negative like everyone tells you and i'm living proof of that <laughs> i totally agree with you I, I i'm i'm it's very inspiring talking to you so listen thanks a lot for I have, you're very welcome Jared. i have great respect for you and i I like I like you as a human being. You've you've always been a good guy to me, and uh, we we get on really well. And uh, yeah, so um, let's meet for a coffee in the next few days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Great stuff, Joe. Thanks again. I'll see you in a couple of days. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Yeah. All right. See you guys. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And that was Fayaz. And it appears in the last few podcasts, uh, the people I chat to always give me great little positive uh, praise at the end of the chat. It's not obligatory to do that. It just happened to have happened in the last few. So, uh, and I leave it in because uh, why not? So, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, very inspiring, I felt, uh, that chat. And... So I think I'm 
talking to an absolutely an absolute legend in music you won't believe who i have in the next podcast just unbelievable i am so excited about next week's podcast it's going to be incredible okay right see ya goodbye baby goodbye Thanks for calling Toyota. This is Jan. How can I help? Hi. Thanks for telling my family and me about Toyota's national sales event. We got a new RAV4 during the event, and it's been great. Well, that makes me happy. Right now through September 6th, it is the best time to drive off in a new Camry Hybrid, Tacoma, and more. So what are you up to? You know, we took the RAV4 to a great spot, and now we're exploring a cave. Amazing. Yeah, my wife talked me into spelunking. I'm actually a complete and absolute amateur. Absolute amateur. Absolute amateur. Huh, I could have done without the echo on that. Toyota's national sales event is on. Visit your participating Toyota dealer today to enjoy every last second of summer. Toyota, let's go places. See your participating Toyota dealer for details. Dealer inventory may vary. Event ends September 6th.